All right, we are beginning a new Christmas series this morning. And even among Christians, Christmas can be quite a divisive issue. I mean, it shouldn't be, should it? It's all in the name, Christ Mass, a a service about Christ, a celebration of Jesus. We would all agree with that. But many other things that Christmas has become is something that we struggle with. The massive amounts of commercialization, some people going into unhealthy credit card debt because it's Christmas, glitz and sparkles everywhere, let alone shops so full that you can't move, uh, is all unfortunately a part of Christmas. In many ways, Christmas has come to represent the exact opposite of what it was meant to be about. I mean, really, Christmas is about the fact that God freely gave through his grace the gift of his son to die and pay the penalty of our sin. Uh, And yet now it's all about the gifts that we give. It's all about what we do rather than what Christ has done, uh, which is really what Christmas is all about. But if you look deeply, if you pay attention, you can still see elements of the true Christmas message that exists today. Families get together still at Christmas. There's still a sense of coming together at Christmas. People are more forgiving at Christmas. People are more generous at Christmas. And you often hear people say, after all, it's Christmas, right? So we still see elements of generosity and grace which come from Jesus. But gee, you've got to look through a lot of other rubbish, don't you? A lot of stuff that's going on. Now, all of these sorts of things, about coming together as family, about being generous, all of these things, all represent the Son of God, Christ, who came at Christmas to offer His life as a sacrifice of sin so that we can become the children of God. So what we really want to do this Christmas is get back to the heart, the core of that message. Now, not through the manger and wise men, not through a star, but through the people that Jesus interacted with. Now, there are truly two sides to the coming of Jesus, two very distinct groups of people that he interacted with. One group we don't talk about very often, but it's right there in your Scripture. So, to begin with, I'm going to open up to Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bible with you. Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 to 3. Matthew 2, 1 to 3. Just pay attention to this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. You don't hear about that as a reaction to Jesus. I I thought it was nothing but smiling donkeys. And yet, there he is, all of Jerusalem deeply disturbed. Now, we've got to get a few things right in our brains to understand this. The Magi were not 
simply travelling astrologers. They weren't simply a group of wise men. They were the leading political class of their people. They were political rulers who had authority. Sorry, Drew, but there was probably lots of them. Now, if you've developed your theology based around Maya's nativity scenes, you're going to struggle with that. But very likely, there was way more than three wise men present at the birth of Jesus. In fact, many estimates think there were roughly 200 people in the party. Right? Does that take anyone by surprise? Well, here's the fact. They were a ruling political group. We're never told there was only three. And on top of that, they would have traveled with a whole retinue of servants And secondly, they would have traveled with a large amount of soldiers because they were the leading political class and they were transporting expensive, wealthy gifts. So potentially we have a group of around 200 people turning up in Jerusalem. Now, think about this for a second. This large retinue of rulers from another place turn up in Jerusalem saying, we have wealth and gifts to give to the king who's not Herod. Anyone see a potential bit of turmoil erupting here? Right? One commentator I read said, when Herod, the turmoil Herod felt meant all of Jerusalem was going to feel it. And we know that, right? Because what's his reaction eventually? to put to death all of the boys, right? Because it's a threat to his power and his influence in the world, the birth of another king. Okay, so this is what we're going to understand. The coming of Jesus caused a massive reaction. Jesus has been, and Jesus always will be, a threat to those who cling to earthly power. Because those who follow Jesus will never bend the knee to another king. Right? So those who follow Jesus will never bend the knee to another king. And so he is a threat to those who cling to earthly power. And so we get this incredible response. Eventually they will plot the death of Jesus because of sinful hearts loving their position of influence in the world. Not realizing that they were fulfilling the will of God. So that's what we see, one massive group, political leaders, religious leaders, power brokers, authority people, deeply, deeply disturbed at the pronouncement of another king. But there's another group, isn't there? The group that we probably talk about a little bit more. The group that bend the knee to the love of God as revealed in Jesus. And what a wonderful picture that Christmas brings us, the coming of God to save those people, to bring the broken, those who admit their sin to the Father. So that's what this series is going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus' interactions with the type of people who do bend their knee, who do come to the Father. And we're going to do that in a few different ways. This morning we're going to look at Christmas for the poor. Next week, we've got Christmas for the immoral. Then we've got Christmas for the religious. And lastly, on Christmas morning, we have Christmas for everyone. All right, so that's our little series we're going to be working through. 
just to look at the interaction of Jesus with different people. So to begin, Christmas for the poor. How do you know that the kingdom of God has come? The kingdom of God is now and not yet, isn't it? The world we live in is currently under the rule of Satan. The world and all of its systems reflect the rule of Satan. But the kingdom of God is currently realized in the church. It's realized here this morning. It's realized wherever the saints gather. Because the church is the place where all of the Christians have bent their knee to the true king where all of the people in the church have said, Jesus, it's your rule, not mine. It's your rule, not the world. It's your rule, not political parties. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so we bend our knee to him, which means the things that Jesus said are applied joyfully and willingly in the church. So when Jesus said, the greatest among you must be the servant of all, the church is where that should be seen. When Jesus said, last will be first, first will be last, that's where it should be seen. When Jesus said, how many times, well, it was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, right? Forgiveness reigns in the church because Christ reigns over the church, right? So this is, the church is where the kingdom of God is visible, tangible, it's understood, it's felt, it's seen because we've bent the knee to King Jesus. So at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, which is to celebrate his incarnation, when the second member of the triune God took on flesh. Right? That's what we're celebrating in Christmas. Now, in Luke chapter 7, we have this very interesting story where John the Baptist, who had come to prepare the way for the Messiah wonders whether or not Jesus is the one that he was preparing the way for. Now, within the Jewish mindset was the idea that the Messiah would come and lead Israel to national glory, to conquer the surrounding nations and lead Israel back to the top. So, despite the fact that John had baptized Jesus and at the baptism of Jesus, the Father had said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, John is now sitting in jail, wondering to himself, oh, I hope I got it right. So, you know, we all have moments of doubt, and John's sitting there, even after all of that, going, oh, what if I got the wrong person, Uh, right? And so he sends some men to go and ask Jesus that question. So we'll pick this up in Luke 7, 20 to 22. Oh, no, our projectionist has walked away, I think. Uh, Luke 7, 20 to 22. When the men from John reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions and evil spirits and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. 
Now, Jesus, of course, was and is the Messiah. He came to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth, which is the church. But note in the list of evidences that he gives to John that proves that he is the one, he says, the poor are having the good news preached to them. The poor are hearing the gospel. One key marker of the kingdom of God is that the poor, the outcast, those without power and influence, those on the fringes of society are hearing the good news. Now, this is a point that we need to own and wrestle with. I know of a denomination whose strategy is to plant churches across from universities and to target doctors and lawyers. That's their whole focus, because if we can target those guys coming out of uni, we get them into our church, eventually they'll be earning good money, and boom, that's how we plant and grow our church. And that's their whole strategy of planting churches around our country, target doctors and lawyers outside universities. I know plenty of others whose one goal is to be hip and cool, to have their church absolutely full of young adults having the time of their life. Now, I am not against doctors and lawyers getting saved. So it's okay, doctors. I just got an acknowledgement. Thank you for that. Um, Nor am I against young adults going to church in groups. They're young adults. They simply cannot live apart, right? That happens. uh, And I understand that. But it does concern me if you can't see the marks of Jesus' ministry in the church. Right? If we can't see the marks of Christ himself in the church, that's an issue. If we can't see the heart of Christ, if we can't see the love of Christ, if we can't see the ability of Christ to reach across barriers in the church, that's an issue. A frustration that I think you can see in churches over the last few years is to separate mercy ministry from the church. You have a paid worker and a couple of volunteers and they often set it up as a separate arm so it's a tax deduction to give to the mercy arm. So you know that whole, if you give $2 more to a charity, you get a tax deduction. So they set up a mercy arm separate to the church, they employ somebody and that is the mercy ministry of the church. Now, many of those mercy arms are doing great things. They're helping people. But the issue is this. Mercy in the church is not meant to be an external body for a couple of professional people. It's meant to be a ministry of the body. It's meant to be a ministry of the gathered people. Not an external body that a couple are being paid to do, but a ministry of the saints of Christ. That is the issue. Where's our role in the ministry of Christ to reaching the poor with the good news? Now, except freely, this looks different for different people. Some will have a role that's hands-on in the midst of those who are struggling. Others might have a supporting role to those up in the front line, praying, encouraging, putting Christmas uh, hampers together, offering transport, whatever it might be. But you are the church and everyone has the capacity to invite someone over for a meal, shout someone out for a meal to a cafe or take someone to a game of footy. 
right? We all have the ability to build a relationship, to build a connection and share the good news. In the church, everyone has a responsibility to engage the poor with the gospel. It's not something we tend to out. The disciples learned this very well, and I find this an amazing statement. I only shared this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to share it again because I think we really need to get our heads around this. So give you that same background I gave you last time. Paul uh, has already been a missionary to the Gentiles. He's already planted churches, but at this stage, he hadn't met the apostles. He hadn't spent time with Peter, James, and John. And so eventually Paul finds himself in Jerusalem where he meets these guys and it's a big moment because they are the pillars of the church that Christ was building the church upon and if Peter had said, Paul, I don't recognize you as an apostle, I don't recognize you as God's appointed man to plant churches across the Gentiles, that would have been catastrophic. Almost game over for Paul's ministry. So we have this meeting and then out of that meeting we have this from Galatians 2, 9 and 10. When James, Cephas, Peter and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Now, the gospel has already been explained in this. The gospel's already been explained multiple times. I mean, it's church planning. It's sharing the good news. But the one requirement they give Paul on top of going out there, preaching the gospel, sharing the good news, planning churches, is to remember the poor. It's incredible, isn't it? One requirement, Paul. One thing that we ask of you, on top of sharing the gospel, remember the poor. To which Paul says, the very thing I was eager to do. Sadly, it's easy for us as churches to let this drop off the radar, isn't it? It's easy to just get comfortable It's way more comfortable to just spend time with people who sit on the same socioeconomic level as yourself. It's way more comfortable to just, you know, turn up at church on a Sunday, turn up at home group on a Wednesday night and, and go through the motions without ever having to engage people from a different perspective. But are we fulfilling the ministry of Christ? Again, I've shared this before, but I think it's amazing. But when the Wesleys were seeing literally thousands upon thousands saved in England. Uh, So many people, they tried to initially take them into the Anglican church. But the Anglican church was full of well-to-do people who said, Wesley, we don't want you bringing dirty people like that into our church and basically banned them. And so Wesley was forced to start his method of discipleship where he organized these people getting saved into groups of 12 uh, and that was his method where he would have someone train lead them effectively like home groups but that method created home groups which eventually turned into churches and hence we had the Methodists right so that's the beginning it was a method of discipleship 50 years after that William Booth hit the streets who started the Salvation Army 
and he started seeing the broken people, the alcoholics, etc., come to faith. And where did he try to take them? To the Methodist church, who said, I'm sorry, but you, uh, we don't want those dirty people in here. We don't want those broken people in here. We're all very well to do. You will have to find some other way to disciple them, and hence we have the Salvation Army. Right? 50 years, church. 50 years, a couple of generations, and suddenly we're too good for the broken in our community. That's a challenge, isn't it? I hope so. How do we view the community around me? Here in our nice, pleasant church gathering, do we still have a heart to reach the broken, to reach the lost? I think we all have a battle in our hearts where we'd rather do what's comfortable than what's right. And it's a battle we've got to keep fighting. This is why the Scriptures make such strong statements. And here is the final passage we're going to look at together this morning. But it's a really key one that I want us to zero in on. This is Luke 16, 19 to 31. It's a passage you know well, Luke 16, 19 to 31. Uh, but worth us zeroing in on for another look together this morning. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son of Abraham, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those cross from there to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. For Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a very illuminating story for us to wrestle with. Now, it's much more exaggerated than most of our lives, but we get the point. We have a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man is smug, comfortable in his wealth and doesn't care for Lazarus at all. But have you noticed the really shocking part of this story? They die. Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man to hell. 
But he is so consumed in his sin that that doesn't change in hell. Notice his attitude. I'm in torment. I'm in flame. I'm burning. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. Send Lazarus to go to my brothers and tell them the good news. In other words, Abraham, send that pitiful piece of garbage that I used to walk by every day. Order him and send him to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. You ever noticed his attitude hasn't changed? Lazarus is still dirt who can be commanded to serve him when he's in hell. So consumed by his own pride, so consumed by his own self-love that he still sees Lazarus as an object to be commanded. The terrible corruptness of the human heart. This was a story that Jesus told to the Pharisees to help them understand their condition. Now, as I said, I don't think any of us here quite fit this situation exactly. Most of us don't have beggars at our gate and dogs licking their sores. And I know this. Sometimes giving someone money is not the best thing you can do. Sometimes giving someone food even may not be the best thing that you can do. But how is it we know who genuinely needs money, who genuinely needs food, who genuinely needs care, who genuinely just needs support and encouragement, who genuinely just needs someone to help mow their lawn, who genuinely needs someone to help them move house? How do we know who genuinely needs different types of help versus those who don't? Any ideas? We know them. Right? The only way you're ever going to know who actually needs help, who is simply putting on a false face, who really needs help because they've got something going on in their family, the only way you're going to know that is to be in relationship with people. To know who they are, to know what their hurts are, to know what their needs are, to know what's rubbish and what's not. The only way, church, that we are ever going to make a difference, that we will ever fulfill the ministry of Christ is to know people from outside these walls. To get involved in their lives, to get involved in the mess of lives so we can genuinely make a difference to those who were hurting. Jesus wants us to care for the poor in our community. And to do that, we need to be with them and in relationship with them. Jesus watched a widow give her last couple of cents at the temple and declared she gave more than anyone else. Why? Because she gave out of the joy of her heart. She gave out of Uh, everything that she had. Do you know the biggest giver in our church might be giving the least? Right? Because it comes out of our heart of what we have to give. But here's the reality. A study recently found that the biggest felt need in housing commission areas was not money, but overcoming isolation. Right? The biggest felt need in housing commission areas was not money, 
but overcoming isolation. Because if you live in a fishbowl of a lower socioeconomic community in high-density housing commission, it's very hard to escape those boundaries when everything around you is broken and everything around you is corrupted and everything around you is struggling. Well, the church is the place that is meant to bring every race, every socioeconomic group, everyone together as one in Christ Jesus. If people are struggling with isolation, then here is a community where they can get to know people. If we're willing to build those relationships. If we're willing to cross those boundaries and welcome people in. We are not a sanctuary from the world. We are the forward camp for the kingdom of God. An outpost taking ground. And that must include by example and teaching of Jesus, by the example and teaching of his disciples, through to us, we will get out there and reach out with the gospel. So think about this. Don't hand it off to a couple of people, but ask yourself, how am I fulfilling the ministry of the church? How am I personally reaching the poor with the good news? When collectively, if I was to ask us, what are you doing? Are you trying to reach the poor? Are you building relationships? When collectively most of us can say yes, then we will be a church that shines the light of Christ. If Jesus' proof to John was that the poor hear the gospel, and we are being made into the image of Jesus, then I don't think it is too big a stretch to suggest that if we were asked, how do we know your church is from God, one of our indicators would be that the poor are hearing the good news. Remember, historically it was the church that almost uniquely cared for the poor and provided free education, hospital care, etc., We need to get back to the place where the church is at the forefront of meeting the genuine needs of the poor, including the ultimate need of preaching the gospel for repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Church, you cannot celebrate Christmas truly without recognizing that Jesus came with a special mission to reach the poor and that that mission has been passed on to you. That is part of the Christmas message. So I finish with a simple question. Are we a church? The church is the gathered people that has a heart for and is willing to build relationships with those outside these walls, those who might be from a struggling part in their life to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's something we need to own this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, there are so many passages we could look at where Jesus has this incredible heart 
for those that society has rejected. Lord, we pray that as a church we'd be willing to get outside of our comfort zone, get outside of these uh, walls, build relationships with broken people, people who are struggling, people whose sins are out there and in your face and obvious. And Lord, share the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we this Christmas have a heart that goes beyond giving presents to our family. Have a heart, Lord, that would give presents to those who desperately need them. Primarily, Lord, the good news. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.